This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Hello and welcome to Heritage Matters, a programme brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust and sponsored by Ryman Healthcare. I'm Dougal Stevenson. In this programme, Gregor Campbell looks at a Kyburn murder trial, which had an unexpected outcome. Judy Southworth reports on three great exhibitions held in Dunedin. Brilliant lawyer Alf Hanlon gives us a lesson on how not to cross-examine. And Richard Stedman tells us about the naming of prominent buildings. Racial intolerance against Chinese gold miners was a feature of the 19th century. But it comes as something of a surprise to see that at least in one area it may have continued well into the 20th. Gregor Campbell has been looking at a homicide in Kyburn that illustrates the point. Shou Leong Shom, also known as Zhou, was the last of the Chinese miners on the Kyburn in the late 1920s. He lived and mined a short distance from the Danzies Pass Hotel with an older Chinese helper and his dog. One afternoon a local policeman arrived to question him about a murder which had recently occurred. Joe gave him a meal. The policeman asked to see his gun. The policeman was not a policeman. William Hardy shot Joe Shum four times for two ounces of gold. He might have thought there was more, but it was winter and mining was difficult. He sold the gold in Ranfurly the next day, then caught the train for Dunedin. Joe staggered out of his hut to look for Sue P, his 68-year-old helper. Reaching him, Joe said, That man shot me. I'm dying. Hurry and go to the hotel and ask man to send car to take me to doctor. Which man shot you? asked Sue P. The man you gave dinner. He wanted me to give him a hundred pounds or he would shoot me. Sue P. Helped Joe make his way back to the hut. I'm bleeding very much, said Joe. Then later, I cannot walk any further. Joe lay down on the grass and cried, I must die. I must die. My intestines are punctured. I can feel blood dripping into my stomach. Leaving Joe in his hut, Supi made his way to the hotel. It became dark, and Supi was a frightened man. It was not until the next day that he got to the hotel, and much later that a policeman and a doctor reached Joe Shum's hut. Joe was dead. William Hardy was found on Cumberland Street, Dunedin, and taken to the police station. He was held until Supi arrived by train for an identification lineup. Sue P. identified Hardy as the man he saw at Joe's hut. Hardy was tried for murder in Dunedin, defended by Alfred Hanlon. Sue P. was, of course, the main witness, but he had not seen the actual murder. Key material evidence was a sample of gold taken by Naseby police from Joe's claim and a plaster cast taken from a boot print near the hut. The gold was shown to be identical to that sold by Hardy in Ranfurly. The boot print was identical to one worn by Hardy. The jury took two hours and twenty minutes to arrive at their verdict. They found Hardy not guilty of murder, but guilty of manslaughter. The jury room is a very private place, and nobody alive today is likely to know how much, if at all, the jury's decision was influenced by the fact that the defendant was European and the victim was Chinese. Mr Justice McGregor, at sentencing, said, The prisoner was convicted by a jury on the most clear evidence of manslaughter. It was quite plain from the evidence 
that he killed the unfortunate victim in most brutal circumstances, the motive being apparently to steal the gold which Shum had, or the gold which accused thought he had. A young man of only 22 years and a native of Dunedin, he seems to have been in and out of industrial schools from an early age. He seems to have been incorrigible and dishonest, and has been convicted of forging and uttering two offences of theft, breach of probation, and then theft again. It appears that he was on probation when this last crime was committed. The jury, of course, had the right to convict of manslaughter, but on the same evidence, I think they could equally have convicted for murder. The penalty then, of course, would have been hanging. After careful consideration, I find myself unable to inflict a less penalty than that provided for under Section 191. There are no extenuating circumstances to my mind which would lead one to impose anything but the maximum penalty. If the accused shows any signs of reform, then no doubt it will be left to the prison's board to take whatever steps are considered advisable in the way of releasing him or otherwise. The sentence of this court is that the prisoner be imprisoned with hard labour for life. Hardy was released in 1939. Shou Leung Shum lies buried in the Chinese section of Anderson's Bay Cemetery. In 1936, newspapers carried a story on the CIB Black Museum, in which the plaster cast of a boot print was described as that of a man named Hardy who shot a Chinese. I'm Gregor Campbell for Heritage Matters. Dunedin has held some great exhibitions in the past. They were an opportunity to showcase the achievements of New Zealand as it moved from being a colony to self-government dominion status. This report from Judy Southworth. Large exhibitions were seen in the 1800s and early 1900s as a way of showcasing New Zealand products to ourselves and to overseas visitors. There were three major exhibitions in Dunedin in 1865, 1889 and 1925. Dunedin promoters saw the 1865 exhibition as cashing in on the gold rush wealth. With grants from central and provincial governments, it became an international event, with displays from Canada, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Germany, Austria, Great Britain, Fiji and Australia. It was situated in Great King Street, and part of it later became the public hospital. Displays included geology, stuffed native birds, collections of wood, flax and wool, landscape paintings and Māori artefacts. The exhibition was open for five months and attracted over 31,000 visitors. The next international exhibition in Dunedin was in 1889. The government granted £10,000 and the site was about 121 acres donated by the Otago Harbour Board in an area bounded by Anderson's Bay, Crawford, Cumberland and Gervois Streets. The aim was to celebrate the Golden Jubilee of the Proclamation of British Sovereignty over New Zealand. There were several annexes and halls. A huge dome, 50 feet in diameter, rose 80 feet above the main entrance. Opening in November 1889 and lasting for 125 days, it made a profit of £579. 
Nations attending included Africa, Canada, Costa Rica, the United States, Ceylon, Japan, Germany, Great Britain, Cook Islands, Fiji, Hawaii, New Guinea, Samoa, the Solomon Islands, Tonga and Australia. For the exhibition, a book was published, edited by Alexander Bathgate, entitled Picturesque Dunedin. It gave a history of Dunedin and its principal institutions. It also featured a very special construction. Eight and a half months after Gustav Eiffel's Paris Tower was completed, a wooden replica was opened in Dunedin at this exhibition. The Otis Elevator Company, who'd built the Eiffel Tower, were responsible. Dunedin's version was 40 metres high, with an elevator inside that rose to 30 metres. The tower cost the equivalent today of $240,000. The ride cost $5, then sixpence, and half that for children. It held 16 people, and they could alight at any of the four landings. The Otis steam-hoisting engine provided power to the four cables. The cabin and landings were lit by electricity, and at the top a large electric searchlight lit the sky. The exhibition also had two other Eiffel Towers, a 20-foot replica in the gardens, and in the Auckland Court, a model built entirely of whiskey barrels and bottles. The final exhibition was classed as a world fair and was held from November 1925 till May 1926. By closing, it had attracted 3.2 million visitors, more than double New Zealand's population at the time. Promoted by the Otago Expansion League, it was a response to the economic and population drift north. It was built on tidal land known as Palisher Bay, where Lake Logan lay. The lake was drained and the site cleared for construction. Architect Edmund Anscombe designed seven pavilions linked by covered walkways around a grand court of reflecting pools leading to the domed festival hall. The site occupied 16 acres, six and a half hectares. There was an art gallery and fernery with a waterfall and streams and an amusement area with seven major rides and a fun factory. The grounds and buildings included a scenic railway loop, restaurant and tea rooms. Displays from around New Zealand and overseas, including courts set up by the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia and Fiji. A new tree-lined road was constructed from the new grounds to the city centre. We now know this as Anzac Avenue. Little is left now. The remaining structure is the reduced building of the exhibition's art gallery. This was bought by Sir Percy Sargood and donated to the city as the Dunedin Public Art Gallery. This remained as an art gallery until 1996, when the gallery moved to new premises in the Octagon. Until recently, artist Lindsay Crook's gallery at Brighton had a small domed roof structure from the exhibition. Maybe it's time for another exhibition. In the first half of the 20th century, Alf Hanlon was regarded as probably the most brilliant barrister operating in the Dunedin courts. His memoir is full of interesting and quirky cases. In one, he shows the pitfalls of asking the wrong question during a cross-examination. Random Recollections by Alf Hanlon, dedicated to his wife and published in 1939, is a fruitcake full of little incidents as well as the larger pieces from his career. Here's a small raisin. 
As an illustration of the dangers attendant upon cross-examination, let me refer to a separation and maintenance case in which I appeared. I acted for the wife, who was the complainant, and the husband was defended by an eminent barrister, who was afterwards elevated to the Supreme Court bench. After giving her evidence in chief, the woman was subjected to a brisk cross-examination, which was meant to show that she was stupidly jealous of her husband. You are much older than your husband, are you not? Yes, a few years. Perhaps that accounts for your jealousy. That has nothing to do with it. Well, has your husband ever been familiar with any woman in your presence? No, he took fine care of that, but he used to write to them. Really? How do you know that? I found a letter in his pocket that he had forgotten to post. So your jealousy led you to search his pockets? No, I was simply fixing his coat. Was the letter addressed to a woman? Yes, one that he was too friendly with. So you know who she was? Of course, I saw her name on the letter. How long ago was this? Nearly 20 years ago. And then came the fatal question. 20 years ago. Then, unfortunately, you won't have the letter to show us. Oh, yes, I have, replied the witness, as she plunged her hand deep into a bag that hung on her arm. After some fumbling about, she produced an envelope containing the letter. The cross-examiner asked to see the missive, and after glancing at it, showed it to his client. Then, turning to the witness, he said, Your husband will swear that he didn't write this. What do you say to that? He may swear what he likes, but he wrote it all right, said the wife. Very well, we'll see. The defendant was called later and strenuously denied having written the letter. On looking at the epistle, I noticed something which I thought might discredit the witness. So I asked him to write two lines that I dictated and to add the word Dunedin. Each of the two lines contained a misspelt word, one of which I have since forgotten. But when his transcript was handed to me, I found that he had made the same mistakes that day as he had made 20 years before. Dunedin had no capital D, and the word petticoat was spelt P-E-T-Y-C-O-T-E. My friend and I left the courthouse together, and as we walked along the street, he said, I got a hell of a knock when the old girl dug up that letter. Yes, I replied. But that sort of thing is always on. I am honoured to be Gregor Campbell. The Heritage Matters. Some prominent heritage buildings have had interesting name changes over the years as great corporations switched between existing buildings. Richard Stedman has been looking at the phenomenon. At the intersection of Water and Vogel Streets, two buildings with shared heritage stand on opposite corners. On the southeastern corner, bounded by Vogel, Water and Cumberland Streets, in dusty gold and weighing in with three levels and a basement, is the National Mortgage and Agency Company of New Zealand building. Or is it? On the northwestern corner, bounded by Water and Virgil Streets in the white and grey, with two levels, we see the Union Steamship Company of New Zealand building. Or do we? The name on this facade is supported by the doormat at the former main entrance in Water Street. To identify the origins of these buildings, 
unravel the mysteries of their past, we must turn our minds back to the 19th century. Upon arrival in 1848, the first settlers came ashore onto the beach at the head of Water Street, the traditional landing place for local Maori, which is commemorated by a plaque on the pavement in Water Street near the corner of Princess Street. With the lowering of Bell Hill, reclamation progressed through the 1860s, 1870s and 1880s, and building construction followed toward the shoreline. As new land became available, Water Street developed parallel to Rattray Street, becoming the location of vigorous commercial activity, although today it is somewhat a backwater, if you'll pardon the pun. The National Mortgage and Agency Company occupied three successive headquarters in Water Street, the first of which has served as home to Trustees Executors Limited for many years and is situated behind John Wycliffe House, bounded by Bond Street and Crawford Street. By 1864, when George Gray Russell, a London shipping and insurance broker, set up business in Stafford Street as a general merchant, Dunedin became the preeminent centre in New Zealand, fuelled by the discovery of gold in the hinterland. Russell also represented British pastoral investors, shipping lines and merchants, and shipped wool and grain and produce to Britain. In this, he was joined by John McFarlane Ritchie, who became his business partner, and the business became Russell Ritchie & Co. By 1873, Reclamation was sufficiently advanced to build the company's first office and warehouse at No. 24 Water Street. Five years later, their business joined the newly established London-based National Mortgage and Agency. In 1875, at the age of 28, James Mills founded the Union Steamship Company Limited. Mills was born in Wellington and raised at Port Chalmers. He was employed by whaler-turned-coloniser Johnny Jones and worked his way up to managing Jones Harbour Steam Navigation Company. Following Jones' death in 1869, Mills accumulated his own shareholding in the company until he was able to take control and floated the Union Steamship Company of New Zealand in 1875 with backing from Scottish shipbuilder Peter Denny in return for orders from his Dumbarton shipyard. In 1883, architect David Ross designed and built an imposing building at 49 Water Street for Mills, which is bounded by Vogel and Cumberland Streets across the railway line from the Harbour Basin. In his book, 100 Historic Places in New Zealand, historian the late Gavin MacLean describes it as an impressive building in the Italian style. The roofline was a riot of minarets, ironwork and flagpoles, dominated by an observatory dome, from which company managers could watch ships come up the harbour. James Mills was knighted in 1907, by which time he'd become resident in England. By 1914, the Union Steamship Company owned 75 ships, was the largest shipping line in the Southern Hemisphere and New Zealand's largest private sector employer. In 1917, the shipping line, which had valuable coastal trade within New Zealand, connections with India and Australia and a line of steamers running between Australia, New Zealand and Canada, was sold to the Peninsula and Oriental Steam Navigation Company, or P&O, and the head office was moved to Wellington in 1921. In the 1930s, the company formed Union Airways of New Zealand and built an air service throughout New Zealand. Union Airways was nationalised by the Labour government in 1947 and renamed National Airways Corporation. It is now Air New Zealand. 
The Union Steamship Company began regular sailings between Wellington and Littleton in 1895, with the Penguin making two round trips a week. In 1905, this became a daily year-round service, and in 1933, the name Steamer Express was adopted for the service. Over the years, a number of ships were used, including two Maoris, two Wahinis, two Rangatiras, and a Henimoa. In what has been described as a fatal mistake, the Union Company announced in 1956 that its ferry Tamahini was to be withdrawn from the Wellington to Picton service, leaving the way open for New Zealand Railways to establish a new service. The second Wahini entered service in 1966 but founded and sank in Wellington Harbour in 1968, while the second Rangatira entered service in 1972 but was withdrawn in 1976, bringing the Wellington-Littleton Steamer Express to an end. The company was in decline and by 1990 operated only seven ships but was involved in ship management, tourism, real estate and other ventures and at the end of the 20th century corporate raider Briley Investments bought all the shares, broke it into components and sold up what it could, bringing about the end of what at one time was New Zealand's greatest enterprise. During its lifetime the Union Steamship Company of New Zealand had owned more than 350 ships. During 1905, National Mortgage moved to its second head office at 38 Water Street, diagonally opposite the shipping company's building, where it operated until 1929. This building is not as ornate as its predecessor, but it was recently earthquake-strengthened, upgraded and repainted. The Union Steamship Company, having moved its head office to Wellington, no longer had use for the larger building, and in 1929 the two companies which shared some directors rationalised and swapped buildings, so that today the former National Mortgage Building bears the name Union Steamship Company of New Zealand Limited along the pediment, while the Shipping Company Building bears the name the National Mortgage Association. In 1940, National Mortgage stripped number 49 and remodelled the exterior in the Art Deco style with a facelift that destroyed its decorative character. It remained the head office until the 1960s when National Mortgage merged with Wrightson's in 1975. It began to decline. A brief reprieve came in the 1980s and 90s when the offices in the building were leased to aspiring Dunedin musicians by a benevolent owner who operated in the former managing director's dilapidated office and in so doing nurtured the so-called Dunedin sound. In 2009 it was described as a sadly defaced hulk in a Dunedin City Council report but was revived by a restoration that won a 2013 Heritage Reuse Award. Given the commercial activity generated by the two companies which in turn occupied number 49 Water Street, Gavin McLean rightly called it New Zealand's most important office building, a description somewhat belied by present-day appearances. This is Richard Steadman for Heritage Matters. And now on a more sombre note, we'd like to pay tribute to our Otago Access Radio colleague Neil McMillan, who has died. Neil fronted and produced the access program The Pulse of Politics and was always a true professional. We'd like to extend our sympathy to his partner Claire and to his family and friends. Neil was for many years a political journalist in the Parliamentary Press Gallery in Wellington. He was old school, was well liked and was widely acknowledged as a skilled, objective and impartial reporter. 
Over the years, you've probably read many of his stories in the Otago Daily Times. Neil McMillan's book, Top of the Greasy Pole, based on direct interviews, looked at the careers of six of our Prime Ministers. Bill Rowling, Robert Muldoon, David Longy, Geoffrey Palmer, Mike Moore and Jim Bolger. He will be sadly missed. This programme, which will be repeated on Sunday at 7pm, is kindly sponsored by Ryman Healthcare and brought to you by the Southern Heritage Trust. Ryman Healthcare prides itself on offering some of the most resident-friendly terms in New Zealand. Ryman Healthcare's Francis Hodgkins and Yvette Williams Retirement Villages in Dunedin offer the very best of retirement living and care. For more information and to discuss your retirement living options, please phone Kate on 455-7936. Ryman Healthcare. Supporting Southern Heritage Trust and the Heritage Matters Programme. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.